Some of you hear the word triage and you immediately know what I mean by that. You've been involved in medical situations or you're familiar enough with the term that I don't know what it means. But if you don't, let me explain what triage is. Let's say that on Friday night you break your leg. When you arrive at the emergency room, there's about 20 people who are already sitting around. You check in and you have a seat and you wait... And 30 minutes pass. You must be getting close. You've waited for quite a while already. Then all of a sudden, another person arrives on a stretcher an hour after you did, and they get immediate medical attention because they were in a horrific car accident. Why does he get to cut in line, you might wonder? You were there first. And that, friends, is an example of medical triage. Assigning degrees of urgency to wounds or illnesses to decide on what order to treat a large number of patients if you have more than one case. Now, if you're the only one in the ER, which may be a you know, Wednesday night or a Tuesday night or a Thursday night here at Penn Bay, you're going to get in. But if you're there on a Friday night, you're probably going to have to wait a little bit longer. If it's not serious. So triage is sorting out according to priority and urgency. We understand that in life we have to prioritize. Um, My wife, Belle, and I have five kids and sometimes uh, three of them could be crying all at the same time. We have to prioritize their needs according to the urgency, which requires a little bit of research and then sifting through to see what is fact and what is fiction and what is opinion, right? But you know that uh, there is also the case of triage with Bible truths. Every one of the Bible truths that is written in the Word of God is important, but they are on different levels of importance. For example... 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul is speaking of the Gospel. Christ died, buried, and resurrected. And he talks about how he delivered to them that message which he says is of first importance. First importance. The, word, the idea of first importance means that although everything in the Bible is important, not everything is on the same level in equalness and, and urgency. Some doctrines have different urgencies. Um, uh, to simplify, you could kind of think of, 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 of three levels, so to speak. And these are man-made assigned levels here, but you can kind of think of it this way. There's first level issues in Scripture. First level issues that are essential and core uh, uh, and central to Christianity. You cannot deny these teachings and still be a Christian in any meaningful sense. For example, one God and three persons. We can't budge on that. Jesus, fully God and fully human. We're not going to move on that one. Jesus, sacrificially dying for sinners. Jesus, rising bodily from the cross. Jesus, returning physically one day to this earth. Being justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Those are first level issues. Then there are second level issues that may create some reasonable differences between Christians, though they are not essential but they are what define different denominations and local churches even. They'll have a bearing on what sort of a Christian church you are a part of. For example, your view on, on baptism and infant baptism or church government. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't have answers for these, by the way. 
or the role of men and women in the church and home. You don't have to hold to one particular view to be a Christian. There are different views, and it would be challenging for a church to have a healthy unity when its leaders and members would disagree on some of these. This is, this is kind of second level. Then there are third level matters, and these are disputable matters, also called matters of indifference or matters of the conscience, and they might involve how you interpret particular passages of the Bible. For example, in Genesis 6, who are the sons of God? They also might involve many practical questions. How should Christians view the Sabbath? Um, And then some things that the Bible doesn't speak of, but you might wonder how do you apply specific uh, 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 truths. For example, I grew up in a home where we we weren't allowed to do anything um, uh, outside or go to... uh, It would would be a hard thing for us to even go to the store on Sunday Now, that's not a big deal with my parents at all. It's not a big deal with me at all. And it was an interpretation here uh, that that had a difference of opinion. Unfortunately, it can be easy for these third level matters to become ingrained in someone's conscience. And whenever there's two or more people who may interact in relationships, they might be brothers and sisters or, or, or students or co-workers or neighbors or church members, they're going to have disagreement with some issues because we don't live in a perfect kingdom yet. And there's no two people, uh, uh, no humans, who will ever agree on absolutely everything, not even a spirit-filled husband and wife. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but they will not agree on everything. We all have different perspectives and different backgrounds that, uh, and personalities and preferences and even the way we think and our way we understand truth about God and His Word and His world that influences this. So what do you think happens then when a group of self-professed Christians join together as a church, a robust, a gospel-centered church? Do you think there's never going to be any disagreement? Of course, the answer is no. And we should expect disagreement with fellow Christians about third-level matters and, uh, uh, and, and some of these second-level issues. We should not have any disagreement here with these first-level issues. But Christians don't always need to eliminate differences. Did you know that? But we should always, in our differences, seek to glorify God by loving each other in our differences. And understanding what the conscience is and how it works helps with that. And Paul addresses that issue in Romans 14 through chapter 15, verse 13. He addresses it in chapters 8 through 11 again. The theme of this passage really is answered by this question. What are your most important rights? What are your most important rights? Rights that you would never give up or allow to be taken away from you. You might have different uh, answers to that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul makes it very clear that if we are going to be involved in shepherding people to the kingdom of God, if we're going to be involved in the task that our Lord gave us of making disciples in grace for God's kingdom, making disciples with a culture of grace... And we need to understand that it's not how much we know ultimately, although knowledge is very important, it's how we love one another. You see, we're looking at a group, a group here, at a room full of people with many different opinions. But what are your rights? 
What are the things that can never be taken away from you? And Paul will answer that question by saying, In Christ, I am a servant to Jesus Christ, and therefore I have no rights. And therefore I am to use my liberty to serve Jesus Christ as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, when we open the book of of Corinthians, you need to understand that we're reading someone else's mail. That we're peering over their shoulder. And of course, the Holy Spirit intended us uh, to, to have this letter so that we could understand it and apply it to our life. But we need to at least be aware at the very beginning that we are not the primary audience. We are the secondary audience. And so to review, to get to our passage of 1 Corinthians 8, so far, in chapters 1 through 4, he has told the church to operate in a cross-centered way. To have the cross of Jesus Christ, the focus of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, crucified, risen again as their focus. And then he has laid out how that applies in their understanding of Christian leaders and their understanding of applying wisdom and reconciling relationships and conflict resolution and understanding sexuality and understanding marriage, singlehood, divorce, widowhood, etc. He has told the church to operate in a Christ-centered way. That real Christian ministers are cross-centered in their message. They are cross-centered in how they live. They are cross-centered in how they encourage others to live. He has warned them about being complacent, about sin in the body, and lovingly and humbly and truthfully exposing and disciplining unrepentant, blatant sin through the proper procedure for the good of God's glory. He has encouraged them in chapter 7 that we spent several weeks in here to use whatever state of life or circumstances or situation they find themselves in to serve God in marriage or in singleness or, yes, even in the loss of a spouse through divorce or death. And so when we come across 1 Corinthians 8, we are reading over the shoulder. And as Josh read these verses, if you haven't read them yet today, let me encourage you, before the passage, before Sunday, read through the passage so you're a little familiar with it. You kind of get the flow of thought. Don't just wait till Sunday to find out what the message is going to be about. Read the chapter so you understand the context here. But the, the, the point of, of, of 1 Corinthians 8 will make a little bit more sense if we understand some of the culture that the Corinthians found themselves to be in. This is the first century. This is Corinth, a, a city in the uh, modern nation now of Greece. And uh, there was an accepted social practice to have meals in the temples, the Greek temples. There were temples to uh, uh, Zeus, there were temples to Aphrodite, there were all kinds of Greek gods they were worshipped. It was a polytheistic world, they worshipped many gods. And so there were temples and shrines all over the place lining the streets of Corinth. If you go to Rome today, there's a restaurant in Rome that's built around the ruins of an old temple. And two of the pillars of that temple are still visible. And that restaurant actually uses them as a part of their feature. It's proud of the ancient origins of that building. uh, And they serve pasta and local cuisine and fine Italian wines. But what people don't realize is that in the ancient world, the temples were the restaurants. Each town or city had plenty of shrines to local gods and goddesses. To gods like Apollo and Venus. And in Paul's day, more and more this started happening. To shrines to the emperor of Rome and to other members of his family. And what people mostly did there was come with animals to sacrifice, to appease their gods. And when the animal would be killed, it would be cooked in the family 
uh, might have a meal with that meat as a centerpiece. But there was usually more meat than those who were coming to worship could eat. So other people would come to the temple and share in the food that had been offered to that god. And even that would fail to use up all the sacrificed meat. So the temple officials would take what was left to the market where they could get a little money for it since they couldn't eat it all anyway or it would be sold in the normal way. In fact, most of the meat for sale in a city like Corinth would have already been offered in sacrifice. And it was the cheapest meat to buy. The poor people could rarely afford meat. And it's through these feasts and these temple sacrifices that they were able to. This was part of the, the, the etiquette in society. People would come together socially, a sacrifice, when a sacrifice was appropriate. And if you had nothing to do with these gatherings, you would cut yourself off from most uh, uh, interaction with other people. And people from the lower classes, this would be like the only time they would ever have meat as an ingredient. And some of them would want to miss out on, a, on what a little bit of meat was offered to them in these, in these feasts and institutions. And then if you were to go and buy the meat in the meat shop, the butcher shop, or the market, it had first almost always been offered in sacrifice, and part of the animal was offered on the altar to the god, part to the priest, and part to the worshippers, and then whatever, as I said, was sold that couldn't be used uh, in the marketplace. That was a situation that was going on here. And there were some people that were saying, we can't eat that meat because of its associations. Now it's important to understand in this passage here, this church is three years old by the time Paul's writing this letter. And it is very probable and seems to be, and I take the opinion and view that many of these people who say, I can't do this, were people who are newly saved. Relatively new believers in the faith. Jesus' little lambs. And they had come uh, out, of a, out of a pagan culture where they had seen uh, the, some of the uh, uh, disgusting practices of this false worship. And for them to take part in the smells and the taste and the participation of buying that meat was bothersome to their young consciences. And that's a situation we find ourselves in. There's some words that I want to help define as we work through these passages here. He mentions the word idols in verse 1, verse 4, verse 7, and verse 10. An idol is something people worship or serve or, 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 or um, uh, hold dear instead of the one true and living God of the Bible. He also mentions the idea, the concept of weak, weaker ones. In verse 7, and verse 10, and verse 12. And the idea of the weak one is an untaught, it's an unknowing conscience. And then, of course, he refers to a conscience. So what is that? Verses 7 and 10 and 12. And it's our internal guide to what we think is right or wrong. And then in verse 10, he uses the word embolden in verse 10. And that means to give courage to do something. To give courage to do something. On verses 1 through 6, let me read and we'll get into the text. Now, as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, or it fills with pride, but charity edifies, or love builds up. And if any man think that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice, uh, that are offering sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, 
the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. You see, there were people in Corinth that had uh, been uh, instilled with the truths of God, that there was one true God, and this meat that was offered to an idol, because God is the one true God, these idols are nothing. They're stone. They're wood. They're nothing. And to eat that meat is meat. It doesn't change anything. And so they said because on the basis of their knowledge, this true knowledge of who God is and what He's done, and the fact that this is just a piece of meat, it's the muscle of an animal, and though it was connected with idols, those idols are nothing. They're wood, stone, therefore there's nothing wrong. And they were encouraging those who were sensitive to this thing to eat in light of that. And the problem with that was though they were true that that knowledge was correct and Paul sides with that knowledge and saying this is that what you're saying is true what he's saying is your knowledge is unbalanced your knowledge is not balanced with love your knowledge is not balanced with grace your knowledge is not balanced with patience and though it's not wrong for you to teach those who are weaker these things it is wrong for you to tell them there to push them into eating these meats so what Paul is saying here is that, yes, Corinthians, you're enriched in spiritual knowledge. He says that in 1 Corinthians 1.5. He says the problem is you're operating your knowledge out of pride, not humility. You know an idol is nothing. You know it's only the representation of a false god who only existed in the minds of those who worship it. You know that just because there's a physical idol in a temple doesn't mean that that god exists. Somebody carved that with their own hands, so that makes them more powerful than god itself. That's what the Old Testament taught. And a non-existent God couldn't contaminate food on his, on, on his altar. So, strong Christians who have your conscience informed by the Word of God, you are correct. So then why are the weak Christians upset with them when the strong Christians are right in that particular sense? Because, friends, and you know this if you have kids, or you know this if you're trying to talk somebody out of superstitions, you don't do it necessarily always out of logic. You don't solve every problem with logic, do you? For example, how many of you have little children who were, or had little children, or maybe you still are, I don't know, or were afraid of the dark when they went to sleep? And so you, could, you convince them and you tell them uh, uh, in so many terms that there's nothing, that, that shadow there is just simply your, 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 your jacket hanging up on the closet door. Um, you are not uh, thinking clearly and that, that fixes it. How many of you found that to fix it? Right? No. Logic doesn't solve every problem. And you may be true, right? But they will not, not and, they, not, and they might come to a point where they begin to understand that, but they're not going to be assured by logical arguments, especially if it's an older brother or sister who says, you dummy, that's just a you know, thing hanging up there. That's just a lamp, right? When you have a superior attitude, that just makes it even worse, right? And so knowledge can be a weapon to fight with or it can be a tool to build with. And the problem with the stronger brothers is that not their position. Their position is correct. The problem is they were using it as a weapon to slice away at the weaker brother instead of using it as a tool to patiently and gently shepherd them and make disciples and disciple them to an understanding of Jesus' lordship and grace. If it puffs up, Paul says, then it can't build up. But Paul says this. Look what he says. 
and verse 1, but love edifies. What he's saying is take, yes, your knowledge, take your, your discipling that you receive, take your instilling of the truths that have been passed on to you, and then shepherd the weaker brother. These new believers who may have knee-jerk reactions to things with grace. Shepherd them with grace. Disciple them with, with patience and kindness. And the reason he says, and, and, and then he'll agree with them, and say at verse 2, if any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet is the oxen. In other words, it's not your knowledge here uh, uh, by itself, but it's a, it's a knowledge that is attached to the love of God in verse 3, and being known by God and let your identity in Jesus uh, uh, temper your knowledge and craft your knowledge, is what he's saying in verse 2 and 3. And then he's going to reinforce what they believe. That is true. He's going to say, yes, it's true. An idol is nothing. It's just meat. And verse 4. Concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered to sacrifice idols. We know that idol is nothing in the world. And there, there's no other God but one. There's one God. And there may be so many so-called gods in this earth. But we know they're not the true God. But then he says in verse 6. But to us, there is but one God. The Father of whom are all things. And we in Him and one Lord Jesus Christ. By whom are all things. And we by Him. What he's saying is this. He's saying, what you need to understand is this truth about God. That is true. That there's one God and He's the one true and living God and it's by Jesus Christ He made the world. But you need to love that God, not just use that knowledge as a hammer, in order to love those weaker brothers. Those whose consciences have not been informed yet. Gently. What he is saying is this. Is love God with your mind and your heart. Love God in humility and then you can love others. You see, what Paul is uh, uh, reinforcing in their mind is what they believe. He's saying the true God is different from idols. The Christian gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ dead and buried and raised again for us in our place shows how different. Our God, says Paul, here is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God that the, that, the, that the prayers of the Old Testament celebrate. The God we're summoned to love. But Paul has seen this truth here, and he agrees with them, that this one true God is known as Father. It's not just truth about God, but He is relational. He's invited them into His fellowship and company. They are to love Him as He loves them. And, and, and the one true Lord is Jesus the Messiah, the very being of this one God. The one who is the world's creator through everything came into being, the one who we owe all things. The one who created that meat. That's such an issue. And the one who is the world's redeemer, Jesus, Israel's Messiah. The one through we, Paul is saying, come to be God's people. Now in Paul's day to the pagan world and to the Jewish world still stuck in Moses' law that was mind-blowing information. And Paul here is not content with just offering some rules. This, this, do this, this, and this, and this. A set of do's and don'ts. Through the difficulties of living as people the, true God, uh, people the true God in a world full of false gods. But he wants them to think through the issues for themselves. And that means thinking about who the real God really is. And why he made us. And the fellowship and relationship we have. 
and what it means to love and serve Him. And so what He is saying to them is that this know-it-all attitude has not thought deeply about God enough, actually. It's an evidence of ignorance. You say you know the truth, but you know doctrine, but you don't know God at the level you should. Do you know it's possible to grow in Bible knowledge? And gone through dozens of Sunday schools, dozens of Bible studies, been in women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies, heard sermons Sunday after Sunday, and not grow in grace? you know churches are full of people like that? They may have been saved for 30, 40, 50 years, and they're about this big in maturity. They haven't grown in grace. And the reason and the, and the way to test that, Paul says, is love. Does our knowledge produce love? You see, the strong believers in the church have knowledge, but they're not using their knowledge in love. And instead of using it to build up the weak saints, they were only puffing up themselves. See, there's a difference between knowledge in the head and a knowledge that rests through the head and settles in the heart. One pastor tells a story of how he used to go visit his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law would never wear a seatbelt in the car. And he always gave him a hard time about it. And then one time his brother-in-law picked him up from the airport and he had on his seatbelt and his shoulder harness. And this pastor said, what happened? What changed you? And he said, well, I went to visit a friend of mine in the hospital who was in a car accident and he went through the windshield. And he had two or three hundred stitches in his face. And so I said, I better wear my seatbelt. And so he said to him, don't you know that if you don't wear your seatbelt, you, you would you go through the windshield if you had an accident? Yeah, I knew that, he said. When I went to the hospital to see my friend, I didn't get new information, but the information I had became new. Because the information got real to my heart and sank down and affected the way I live. And that's what Bible truth is supposed to do. You're not supposed to just fill up your heads here. And, and we have a, a strong identity in South Hope Community Church of learning. You hear a lot of Bible teaching. But we're weak in other identities. We're weak in church as a family. We're weak in expressing the truths that we learned in very practical ways. We need to grow in that. We need to make sure we're, we're in balance here. Because it only will make us have puffed up heads. So it needs to be a knowledge that is seated in love. A head versus knowledge in the heart. And Paul's great concern is that these strong saints take their knowledge. He doesn't say your knowledge is stupid. He says take your knowledge and use it to shepherd these new believers. Because he doesn't want weak saints to stay weak saints. Paul says, I wish that all were strong as I in Romans 14. So shepherd people to strengthen in Christ, disciple them to confidence and freedom in Christ. Um, By the way, just for sake of context, this is different. This is different than people who get offended when other people exercise their freedom of Christ who have been believers for a long time. This is a little different category here. And many times it is weak Christians who think they're the strong ones because they have all these additional rules added to their lives. And that makes it difficult for strong saints to lovingly minister to the weaker brothers and sisters. And it's here that love enters this picture. Love builds up. And what Paul is saying with these Corinthians is this. When spiritual knowledge is used in love, the stronger Christian is taking the hand 
of the weaker brother. And he is helping him to stand and walk to enjoy his freedom in Christ, patiently and carefully. He is not force-feeding immature believers and transforming them into giants. Example, let me give you an example. Um, A missionary um, I'm familiar with, J.D. Crowley, lives and works in a tribal area in Cambodia. And the most important musical instrument in many tribes of Southeast Asia is, is the brass gong. And they have a set of gongs. Um, five rhythm gongs of, large, of various sizes. The largest one is like eight, three feet across. And then they have eight smaller melody gongs. So they play like bells, like some of you heard bell choirs here in the, in the West here. Western part of the world. And the sound is, uh, is it's deep, it's lush, uh, it's a captivating, it's a nice sound. And so J.D. Crowley, an American missionary who administered these Cambodian tribes, suggested to these believers that they use these gongs to worship the true God. And all of them unanimously rejected that idea. I said, no way. Because gongs, in their mind, were so strongly associated in their minds with the demon worship that they got saved out of, that their conscience would let them use gongs to worship God. And J.D. said he had to learn a lesson. Because we understood the workings of conscience, he said, we didn't push it. We didn't push it. But we did remind them gently through the Word of God, truthfully, lovingly, when opportunities arose that everything good belongs to God. Including the gongs. Gongs a piece of metal that makes a sound, right? Music itself, Zephaniah 3.17, belongs to God. And we had to remind them that Satan stole these good things for his evil purposes, like the demon worship, right? But he said this, Someday, when your consciences grow strong, you might decide to use these beautiful instruments to praise the living and true God. And that's where he left it. And a few years later, the leaders approached him and initiated and said, It is time. They had educated their minds with the truth that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, And so they subtracted from their conscience this conviction that's inherently sinful to worship God with gongs. And they set a day, and dozens of tribal believers gathered from many villages to use the skills that they had had as unbelievers to play gongs and write new songs to praise the living and true God. And 15 years later in those villages, J.D. Crowley says, only the Christians use gongs anymore. The unbelievers sold them to buy motorcycles and TVs. So it shows you that your conscience can be calibrated, can't it? According to the Word of God. It's like your scale. Right? you got that little... No- How many of you know that knob exists on your scale? Come on. You get more, more people should be honest about that. You could, you could turn that knob on your scale and make it say less than what you want it or more than what you want it. But it's to calibrate it to the correct, uh, to correct weight because your scales can sometimes be off. And we have ca- our consciences can be calibrated. Our consciences are not written in stone. They need to be calibrated according to the Word of God. Not just what we grew up with or what we heard, etc. Uh, so a, a, a person can have a weak conscience on a particular issue through former associations. And that's what some of these new believers in Corinth were doing. It was keeping them from eating any meat at all. Not because of their strict upbringing, which seems to be the case in Romans 14 with Jewish believers, but because eating meat in their minds was so associated with pagan ritual sacrifice, they couldn't eat meat without thinking of those gods. And so, Paul says, love others by loving God and understanding who He is, 
But secondly, love others, he'll say in verses 7 through 13, by serving them in sacrifice as Christ did. By serving them as sacrifice as Christ did. Look what he says in verse 7. However, there is not in every man that knowledge, that knowledge that you have. Or understanding. For some with conscience of the idol, to this hour eat it as a thing offered to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commends us not to God. Eating certain things don't make us more spiritual. That's what he's saying. Don't, doesn't earn us favor with God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse in our standing with God. But take heed or take care, warning, lest by any means this liberty of yours, this freedom that you do have in Christ, becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see you which has knowledge, sit at me, sitting eating in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you sin, so against the brethren when they're weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest they make my brother to offend. Now please understand that the idea of offend is not our American connotation of offend. We're offended if someone takes our parking spot, right? We're offended if someone uh, likes a different uh, sports team than we do. I'm all offended at all of you Patriot fans. Right? No. That's not the idea. The idea of offend is actually to cause someone to start to leave the faith. And the stumbling block he refers to is not just something that, oh, I don't like, you know, they don't share my preference or my opinion about this, so, oh, you're an offense to me. Change yourself. No. It's the idea of this could actually start to misdirect their walk in Christ, away from Christ. And Paul uses very strong language. He says, through your knowledge shall the weak brother perish. He's not saying that that a believer can lose their salvation. What he is saying is that um, from man's from, from from seeing it from our perspective with our eyeballs in this world here, this could cause a person to walk away from their faith. And that is a serious thing. So what Paul is saying is not only love others by serving them in sacrifice <coughs> uh, 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 as, as in love uh, by knowing God, but love others by serving them in sacrifice as Christ did. In other words... Our conscience, as I mentioned, is like an internal compass. Uh, it needs to be calibrated on issues of right or wrong. And so Paul here has a robust conscience when it comes to eating meat. He has no problem with it, right? He doesn't need to ask where it comes from, he's, but he's well aware that not all Christians are like this. And he's not going to force them overnight. Or he's not going to encourage these stronger brothers to force them overnight to change. What he is saying is, that these are little lambs. They are not long in the faith. And if this is going to be an obstacle to them growing in the faith, don't force them to eat this steak. Give them bite-sized portions. Feed them. Gently baby them. Don't leave them as babies. He doesn't want them to stay weak. But he's saying, shepherd them and disciple them in the ways of Christ. Gently with patience. That's what he's saying. And he's saying if this means giving up some rights so you don't have a stake in this particular context and situation, he's saying the end result is so worth it. Because Paul will say over and over in 8-11 through 11 that he will by all means save some. He wants to see people develop and grow in the relationship with Christ and he's not going to let this be an issue that they're going to say, eh, 
you said this, this, I see this inconsistency, and I'm moving on. Here's the issue that they faced. Before their conversion, which probably was quite recent, they had been regular worshippers in the shrines of the idols. They knew what went on there, the dark sense of the mystery and fear in these cultic worship rituals. The sense that it was part of their worship, that in feasting at the God's table, they were taught that you were really eating and drinking the God Himself into you. You were taking His life to be your own life, this false God, this idol. And then they would drink so they didn't have any moral restraints. And then as they would head out, there would be other men and women who would beckon them to fornication for a little extra payment to the God. So imagine, you shared that dark world. And now you came to Jesus. And you see some people not having a problem going to the temple. Eat, right? Well, it's true, there wasn't a problem with that, with the eating of the meat. It's just meat, Paul says. But their consciences hadn't been gently exercised to that. And they are not able in their young thinking to understand how the world can be divided up in different parts and the very smell of that meat, the chantings, the drink, the prostitution that they would observe would bring it all back. And so it would take time to teach through this. Prayer, help, counsel. And Paul is concerned for these people. He does not want this to be an issue that makes them depart from Christ. Because all Christians are members of the Messiah, part of the body, right? And he sees any of these attacks on these believers, these young little lambs, he sees in verse 12 as an attack on Jesus himself. Look what he says in verse 12. But when you sin so against the brethren, and by the way, this not talking about um, doing this you know, accidentally, he's talking about arrogantly pushing and flaunting this, right? He says, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Messiah. You sin against Messiah. That's a strong statement, isn't it? You see, Warren Wearsby says this, some Christians have weak consciences because they've been saved only a short time and have not had the opportunity to grow. That's this particular case, right? Like little babes in the home, they must be guarded carefully. Other saints have weak consciences because they will not grow. They ignore their Bibles and Christian fellowship but remain in a state of infancy. Hebrews 5:11 through 14. 1 Corinthians 3:1-4. But some believers remain weak because they are afraid of freedom. They are like a child old enough to go to school is afraid to leave home and must be taken to school each day. It's this first case that Paul's talking about. Christians with weak consciences, like little babes in the home, who must be guarded delicately and carefully. And friends, it's important to know that the stronger believer defers to these weaker believers in love to help them mature. He doesn't pamper him, but he seeks to gently edify and build him up to help him grow. Otherwise, if he does not, both will become weak and the church will be ineffective in a lost world. 
Friends, it's also important to note that one of the points Paul drives home about the love that is supposed to be issued out of the heart of the stronger brother is this. And through your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died. Is that not the ultimate example of giving up rights? Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven. He gave Him, so He lived a perfect life, and He gave Himself as a sacrifice to the extent of the cross. Does that not show that weaker brother's value in His eyes? If Christ has accepted you, shall He not accept the weaker brother? Is what Paul is saying. Jesus is building His church, but Jesus will not build His church on arrogancy. But Jesus' church flourishes in humility and love, doesn't it? Ken Langley shares a story of when he was on an overbooked flight and they were summoned to go get bumped up to first class. And they played a little game trying to guess who didn't belong in first class, who also got bumped up. He said one man stood out. He patted around the cabin in his socks. He restlessly sampled magazines, playing with but never actually using the in-flight phones. Twice he sneezed so loudly he thought the oxygen mask would drop down. And when the attendant brought linen tablecloths for a breakfast trays, he tucked his into his collar as a bib. And so their game of seeing, okay, who, who didn't fit here, is kind of sometimes what we do as a church, isn't it? We need to understand that in a church, everybody fits if they're a believer. Right? Because we're all misfits and God has brought us all in the grace. And those who aren't believers, we need to see them as not yet believers. People through our prayer and through our love that God will bring along the path of saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus took us undeserving sinners and He made us righteous through faith in Jesus to be seated with Him in royalty just as He has for others who may not fully recognize their freedom in Christ. I'm speaking to stronger brothers this morning. A Jewish storyteller tells a story that reminds us of this very truth. After a meal, some children turned to their father, Jacob, and asked if he would tell them a story. A story about what? asked Jacob. About a giant! The children squealed. And Jacob smiled, and he leaned against the warm stones at the side of the fireplace, and his voice turned softly inward, and he said, Once there was a boy who asked his father to take him to see the great parade that passed through the village. And the father remembered the parade from when he was a boy. He quickly agreed. And the next morning, the boy and his father set out together. As they approached the parade route, people started to push in from all sides. And the crowd was growing thick. And the people along the way became almost a wall. And the father lifted his son and put the son on his shoulders. Soon the parade passed. And the boy kept telling his father how wonderful it was. And how spectacular it was. And the colors and the images of the thing he saw. And the boy grew so prideful of what he saw that he mocked others who saw less, saying to his father, if only you could see what I see. And Jacob said, as he told the story to his children, what the boy did not look at was why he could see. What the boy forgot was that once his father too could see, but then his father put his son on his shoulders. And then he stopped sharing the story. And one of the girls said, Is that it? We thought you were going to tell us a story about a giant. Jacob said, I did. I told you about a boy who could have been a giant. How? The kids asked. A giant is anyone who remembers we are all sitting on someone else's shoulders. And stronger brothers, we are sitting on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. 
And if we forget where we came from in Jesus Christ and we don't share, balance our knowledge with love, you know what someone who's sitting on their shoulders is, who acts the wrong way? They're a burden. They're a weight. Stronger brothers and sisters, don't let your freedom in Christ be a burden to the mission of Christ. The kingdom of God in grace. Christ has accepted us. He has carried us. We are who we are because of His death. He left heaven to give Himself as an atonement, a payment for our sins. And you know He did that for other people besides yourself. He did that for other people besides me. He thought they were just as valuable and His love so overflowing that He laid down His life for them as well as you. And it's because of the cross of Jesus Christ we can apply the radical sacrifice of the cross to making disciples in a love-saturated attitude that puts ourselves aside for the kingdom of God to shepherd others to a rock-solid relationship with Jesus. So they will not stay as children tossed with the wind and wave over these issues that would wreck their faith but go firm in Jesus. And it's five chapters later that Paul brings this to a head. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and martyrdom, and I am not charity, it profits me nothing. Charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not. Charity vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Though there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Let's pray.